This is Football CFB, the home of unique football content. I never told you You scared off the vultures I never told you You scared off the ghosts living in my head That lay lonely in the dirt That Absolutely delighted to be joined on Football CFB today by a very special guest. This man has directed an incredible film. It's called The Three Kings and features Sir Matt Busby, Jock Steen and the great Bill Shankly as well. A very interesting story. Not only that, he's his own talk sports show, Johnny Owen and Friends. He also directed Brian Clough's I Believe in Miracles, a great film as well. And of course, Don't Take Me Home, the film about Wales and their incredible Euro 2016 journey. Johnny Owen, thank you for joining me. It's a pleasure. Pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. The first thing I want to talk to you about is your love of football. I believe you were a Cardiff fan growing up. What was your upbringing like with football? Yeah, I come from a, a football-obsessed town, really. It's a town called Merthyr Tidville in the South Wales Valleys. It's quite unusual in that it's such a football town. It always has been, though. It had a football league club uh, until the early part of the 20th century, but then a very successful non-league club. And my father and my grandfather used to go and watch Merthyr quite regularly and take me up as a young boy, you know. So um, I grew up just sort of like surrounded by the game, really. You know, they were huge fans of the Welsh national team. We used to take me to see them from a young age as well. It was always on the TV, uh, you know, all the classics match the day as it was down in Wales, uh, the big match on a Sunday. So, yeah, just a, a huge football sort of uh, background. We used to play out in the street with my mates, you know, when I was a, when I was a young boy, played for local teams. Um, and, you know, like I said, I grew up watching Merthyr Town, uh, Merthyr Tidwell, as they were called then, um, and Cardiff City, really, with the local league club. So we used to go down there 24 miles on the train. Um, and in my late teens, I sort of used to do the classic going with my mates, you know, the boys from the, in the same street as me. We all used to go to the match together, got into the sort of like, you know, we used to call them trendies. I think you call them casuals in Scotland with a way of dressing in a very specific manner, all that kind of stuff. Because uh, I'm sure my age, you know, that was the mid-80s, late-80s, early-90s. So, yeah, just loved the game, really. Loved the game of football. Uh, and not just, you know, Cardiff, Merthyr and Wales, but loved the game. You know, I used to watch all the international football, all the European football, Scottish football, English football, world's football, really. So, yeah, you know, I was just one of those kids obsessed with it. And still am, really. It's given me a great uh, living. You know, it's, it's provided me, like, with a radio show, doing films, a column, you know, so I can be very thankful, really. I, I got into um, ITV Wales to work uh, in my 20s and I was working on Soccer Sunday, which was the, the flagship show there on Welsh television and worked my way up from being a researcher at the start and I ended up sort of presenting it and producing it. So, yeah, I love the game. You, you mentioned that journey that, that you've been on um, from researcher to producer. In terms of your um, upbringing of playing football, who was your football and hero? Who did you try and emulate? Oh, well, I mean, I loved um, I loved local players. You know, when I was a kid, uh, Merthyr had a fantastic football team and they won the Welsh Cup and they famously beat Atalanta in the European Cup Winners' Cup, one of the biggest European upsets of all time. So the local team had some great players. There was a lad who was in my school a few years older than me called Kevin Rogers, who went off to play for Aston Villa, Birmingham, Wrexham, but he came back to Merthyr. He was a bit of a homebird, so he wanted to come back to Merthyr. So when I was watching Merthyr as a kid, he was one of my heroes, really, because he'd been in the same school as me. And he scored against Atalanta as well. And I got to know Kevin as well. And it gives me 
as much of a thrill bumping into Kevin as it does bumping into Gareth Bale because he was my hero when I was a boy and that never leaves you, I don't think. You know, that a part of you that loves somebody, you're always going to love that person all your life. So, yeah, you know, and I was the same with Cardiff. I loved the player called David Giles who played for Cardiff and Wales. I got to meet him as I got older as well. I always thought he was terrific. And, you know, I grew up, my father would talk about players that I'd never even seen playing, like Puskas, you know, he used to talk about what a great player he was and how great the Busby Babes were and the great Celtic team that won the European Cup in 67. You know, and, you know, I was really lucky, really, because I was, I was surrounded by men that knew football history. So they talked to me about great players, Pele, for argument's sake, and, and Cruyff. Uh, and then later, Maradona, I seen Maradona played and they loved modern players, which was great. What was great about my old man and my grandfather was they loved the game regardless. They weren't those people that kind of said by the 70s, 80s and 90s, ah, the game's gone. They loved still watching football in all its forms, literally until the day they died. They used to think it was heaven that there was so much football on telly. My father couldn't believe his luck, you know, in Sky started bringing out so many channels showing football because in the old days, as we know, it was just the cup finals that would be live on television. So, yeah, you know, I kind of um, had football heroes and I had a great respect and love for all football men, really. I was never particularly partisan, really. You know, even as a Cardiff fan, I always wanted us to beat Swansea and the same with Merthyr, with Newport. But I could still admire the other team and their, their players. I always had it in me that, you know, football was about something that transcends even all that, you know, and you could admire great players. You know, it's really interesting. I had a message last night from a, a Celtic fan saying how much he enjoyed the film, but how important it was that I mentioned the great Rangers team of 67 who got to another European final and they had great players as well. And they pushed them all the way in the league. And we had a bit of a chat about it, you know, and I love that. I love it when fans can sit down and, and discuss, you know, the game in, its, uh, in all its glory. And, and you mentioned the fact that it wasn't just um, Welsh football that you were interested in. It wasn't just English football. It was world football, European football. And is that really one of the main principles behind the Three Kings? The fact that you had these three figures who happened to be Scottish, who conquered Europe and, and, and conquered that arena, albeit with different clubs and with similar backgrounds in terms of upbringing, but very different stories when it comes to the management side yeah I, I, it's quite interesting actually because scotland loomed so large in my childhood the scottish football team and i, I because i've been because i've done the film and i've had so many great questions from people like yourself i've kind of found myself remembering things and why i can trace back why i did this film and i can see it goes right back to my childhood my father was a really good footballer much better than me and my brothers I could have gone pro, but he, he went underground to work because that's what you did in those days, the early 50s. He got uh, an apprenticeship, you know, electrician, and it was just considered to be, you know, more sensible to do that, you know. So he played non-league football as well for, to a great standard. And he went into the Welsh Army. He was National Service. And I was a young boy, and um, he played for the Welsh Army team. He was really good. And he, I always remember him saying, oh, you know, we drew against the Northern Irish Army team and we and the English team, I think they even drew with that. I always remember him saying, but we couldn't live with the Scots. They were such good players, you know, and obviously Scotland had a lot of boys who had joined up for national service who were playing for teams at that time as well in Scotland. And those things kind of stick with you, I suppose, when you're a kid, you remember them, you know. And then, of course, I, I, in my, when I got to my seven, eight, the first game that I vividly remember was the game at Anfield where Joe Jordan famously handed the ball. I know these Scots will say he didn't hand it, but, you know, <laughs> we always felt he did. And I remember that so vividly and I couldn't believe that he got away with it. And um, it's a bit of a family story that I cried as a young boy, you know, because I couldn't believe that, you know, it was allowed to happen. Uh, and then, and then, of course, it was the game in '85 where we played you with Minion Park, the tragic game where Jock Steen passed away. I was at that game, at that game. So I think I've always sort of been very aware of of Scottish history, 
in football. Um, and then what happened was, obviously, there was the great Aberdeen team and the Dundee United team of the mid-80s who were very, very popular uh, in South Wales and the rest of Britain, I'd say, as well, especially when Aberdeen won the European Cup in his cup final, famously, against Real Madrid. I can remember watching that in a packed house, you know, my brothers, my grandfather, all there. Uh, and then I was about 18, and Merthyr Tidville, Merthyr Town, I keep calling them Merthyr Tidville, in Merthyr Town now, they had a fanzine called Dilem for Merthyr that... Uh, got a relationship going with uh, the Spider's Web, which is Queen's Park's fanzine. So I went to Scotland for the first time uh, in my late teens and I played football. We played football against them. We stayed up for a weekend and we had a fantastic time. And then they used to come to Wales every year as well and stay with us in Merthyr. And the lad that I sort of uh, put up, his name was Kevin Devine. And he's, we're still mates now. We're still friends. He lives in New York now, but the, the, the Queen's Park boys, as we call them, they still come down to Wales and the Welsh boys all go to Scotland. This is 30 odd years later. So when I used to go up there, we used to go and watch football. We used to go and watch Queen's Park and, and other teams. And obviously Dizzy, as we call him, Kevin Divide, his nickname was Dizzy. He was a Celtic fan as well. So he took me to Celtic Park. Um, and also I've got other mates up there. Ian McKinnon is a good mate of mine, the lead singer of the Medicine Men. He's a big Partick Thistle fan. So he's taken me to see Partick Thistle. So I always have these great conversations with Scotsman where I go like, they go, oh, bloody blood. I go, yeah, I was in Annan. And they go, you were in Annan. And I go, yeah. And they go, why? And I go, watching football. And they go, you were in Annan watching football. And I go, yeah. And they go, why are you? I was like, well, I watch Queen's Park, you know. And they go, you were in, I was like, yeah. And I've been to Cowdenbeath. And they go, you've been to Cowdenbeath. And I go, yeah, yeah, I've been to Cowdenbeath. So I just, I've just done it all my life. And I love it. I love the day out. I love the beer. I love the pies you have up in Scotland. <laughs> and my mate Alex, he had four once in a day. Four pies. I always remember saying, yes, your fourth pie. He was like, I love him so much. And we go on the train if we can, if we go away. And we go with the Queen's Park boys, my great friend Martin Harvey. And I meet them in the horseshoe bar. They always laugh at me because I always ask to meet in the horseshoe bar. I stay in the Central Hotel. And I've been doing it for many years. So I think I've kind of like, this is my love letter to Scotland, reading Scottish football. I think I've always had it in me that I wanted to do this film. Um, and, and I'm so pleased that I've done it and I'm so pleased how well it's doing. <laughs> I can't quite believe it really, because you know, the other films I've done did great, you know, and we got in the top five in the Amazon sports charts and we were delighted. This is a different thing altogether. It's getting in the top three in the, in the actual Amazon charts, which is extraordinary, you know, so it's, it's kind of transcended. And I've been really lucky because Scotland had qualified for a major tournament. <laughs> so I think there's a really, there's a good feeling in Scotland at the moment, which is fantastic. Um, and I'm so pleased you, um, that you qualified. I was jumping around as if I was born in, in the Outer Hebrides uh, the other night when I went through, because I just think Scotland being at a major tournament is great for football. It's great you're playing England at, uh, at Wembley. You've got terrific supporters, the Tartan Army. And, and you've made me laugh this last few years because all my mates have gone, ah, we're rubbish. And I'm going, no, you're all right. And they go, no, nah, you're really good, Wales, but we're rubbish. And I'm going, I think you'll call it. And they go, ah, but now you've qualified. I'm so pleased because I said to them, you see, you've done it. You know what I mean? You've kept the faith. And they were so pleased like the country was. And I've got to say this, so many English lads I know are so pleased because they love the rivalry. You know, it's a bit like Celtic and Rangers. You want to be playing each other, really. You know, you do want to be playing each other. Man United, Liverpool, you want to be Cardiff, Swansea. We had a nine-year gap when we played again. It was great, you know. You do want to be playing Wales and England. And, you know, I said to a few English younger fans who were a bit cocky, so, you know, that's an easy three points. I'm saying, you need to slow down. I said, because I'll tell you something. I think you've played each other about 140-odd times. And England have only beaten Scotland seven more times. And I said, they've got one-tenth of your population. So, so they ain't going to go down there to roll over. Every time they've been down there recently, they've got a result. So you need to calm down with that. And the older English fans have all said to me, Johnny's right. That will not be an easy game. I can't wait for it, actually.
that'll be incredible. And 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 as you say, we've qualified for a, for a major tournament. And and speaking as as a genuine football fan, when I saw the trailer for the Three Kings, and I'm not just saying this because you're on. It just gave me goosebumps, and I thought, wow, it just. It just had everything. Obviously, the, the three characters who who are in the film are, are massive characters in their own right. But putting them together for me is an incredible idea, and 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 something that you've referenced as well. The great Hugh McIlvanny many yeah. years ago profiled um, these three as well. How much how much pride does it give you that you've you've managed to create a film that, God bless him, the great Hugh, I'm sure would have been very proud of. I'd be, you know, there's a good argument to say that he was the greatest football writer of, of, the, of the 20th century, you know, and this, it's no uh, coincidence that uh, he got Alex, Sir Alex Ferguson, got him to write, course, write his autobiography, because uh, he was considered the greatest, wasn't he? Um, so I, I, it was really interesting because I, I loved that series when it came out. And when I first came up with the idea of this film, obviously I referenced that, and me and James Gay Reese, who was the producer of Senna, Amy, and Paul Martin, the producer of, of Maradona, when we spoke about it, we were a bit like, oh, well, it's, it's been done. And then when we looked at it, it's nearly 30 years old. So we thought, gosh, so much has happened to football in 30 years. And there's another generation of kids who've come through, you know. So maybe it's time to, to try and tell that story again in our own way. Um, because obviously he did it in a fantastic way for that time. But obviously we've got another generation to reflect our back on, on, on how much, not just they've changed, but they, their reputations have changed. Because Bill Shank, his granddaughter, gave me a fantastic line. She said to me, he seems to get bigger every year. And it's kind of true, really. Manchester United fans, when I went over to Manchester with my great Mancunian mates to see the United play, it's amazing how many songs they sing with the word Busby in it. You know, they sing the Bouncing Busby Babes. They sing songs about uh, United playing a very specific way, and they say playing football the Busby way. So, and Steen, obviously, you know, is, uh, you know, you see the giant banners of him, you know, at Parkhead, Celtic Park, and you just think, well, every year they seem to become more important. So we try to make the film uh, in, a new, in a new way, uh, with a modern slant, and the note from the two producers, which was fantastic all the way through it, kept saying to me, you need to make a film that an 18-year-old can watch, who doesn't support these football clubs, which is a great note, because the moment you get a bit indulgent and you take, you assume that, that somebody will know something, assume knowledge, then you're in trouble. What I had to do is I had to make a film that somebody will watch who supports, I don't know, Blackburn, and will sit down and go, I really enjoyed that, and I never knew that, and that's what we try to do. I think that's very important, and that's something that definitely comes across in the film. And and you reference Senna there, that documentary. You've you've been on record before saying that it sort of changed the perception of sports documentary, and and how important a film is that for you and your directing career? Because sports documentaries are now some of the the, the most incredibly well produced pieces of film out there. Never mind just in the sports categories you reference with the Amazon charts, the very best out there in any chart. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, somebody said today we're living in the golden era of sports documentaries, and I kind of, I agree, actually. I watched the Finding Jack Charlton documentary uh, last week. I was lucky enough to be given a press screener, and I can highly recommend that. Beautifully done. Uh, the Bobby Robson one was fantastic, you know. And, you know, not, like you said, not just football. I mean, you know, the, the one, the huge hit of, uh, of the lockdown was, uh, was the uh, Chicago Bulls documentary, um, The Last Dance. Uh, but I think the real game changer for me was Senna. There was a brilliant document, there's been brilliant documentary sport documentaries, but the, the real one that I felt was the first start, the first stirrings, was a thing called When We Were Kings, which was about Muhammad Ali's fight with George Foreman in, uh, in Zaire. 
But the one that was commercially huge as well was Senna. Senna went to cinemas and Senna went, you know, and did brilliantly on DVD. But I think what happened with Senna was so many people said, you don't have to be a football fan to watch this. I think that was the key then. Um, and a similar thing was said about Three Kings on BBC Breakfast by the presenter. He went, you don't have to be a football fan to watch this because it's about great characters and a great story. And that's the thing with, with, um, with sports documentaries that I love, like you said, they've broken out. You don't have to be a massive fan to say, oh, you don't have to say, oh, well, you've got to be a Man United fan or a Liverpool fan or a Celtic fan to watch this. You can actually be just a punter of what likes great filmmaking in the sense of like a story, great characters and an amazing story arc, you know, of these blokes who came from, you know, mining, industrial Scotland and ended up changing football, which is the world's most popular sport forever. You know, it's a, it's a great story. If, you, if I was a, writing a Hollywood script and I went in and went, oh, there's a guy, you know, called Matt Busby from Scotland. His father dies in the war. He's the only male Busby left. He, he, he works underground from his, when he's 14. He then goes to Manchester and he creates one of the biggest sporting institutions on the planet and on the way loses a team that he brings through in a plane crash and then wins the European Cup 10 years after. They'd send me out of the room. They'd go, get, get to be so ridiculous, you know? But that's his story. And that's just one of them. I mean, it's remarkable when you think of it. When you pull it apart, it's actually incredible. And the fact that three of them came from the same place, you know, just little things that people are saying to me again, which is people take for granted. They know people go to me, I never read really that Celtic team. We're all born within 30 miles. I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, this is new, a new generation of people. That's unbelievable. I'm like, I know. And I said, you know, people love the great Barcelona team that all sort of, you know, Iniesta, Biscuits, the messy top behind you that kind of came through the academy together. That romance of that, people love it in football. You know, Celtic did that. With a team, with a local team, Manchester United did that. The Babes, you know, they scouted and, and got a team together. So you know, those stories people really love and, and, and associate with. And you know, with Liverpool, Liverpool is, is something really interesting because with Shankly, you know, you had the cop, that thing of the cop and the people and what he created there. You know, and and you know, Liverpool are a worldwide football club now. And, you know, somebody said to me the other day, I never realised that they were like just a middle table second division club. I said, I think they were actually bottom of the second division when he went there. They were really living in, in Everton's shadow, so to speak. And I said, his turnaround, because we're so used to Liverpool being this leviathan of a football club, you know, this, this giant thing. I said, it's hard to understand that, you know, literally he went to what, you know, now would be maybe Huddersfield Town, which is where he was at, and turned it around, you know. So it's a bit like... When you take a step back sometimes, the, the story is almost more extraordinary than you realise. Absolutely, and I think um, some of the interesting uh, things about the film, I mean, you think of Sir Matt Busby, he played for Liverpool and Manchester City, yet he Aye. built that great Manchester United team, and as you say, people talk about the Busby way. There's just so many interesting aspects that come out of the film and so many interesting aspects that come out of these guys stories and, and as you rightly said earlier they do get more important each year because I think with the the power of hindsight as that continues to grow for the next generation coming through they look back and marvel as you say about the fact a team could be within 30 miles of the stadium the fact that you can take over a club at the, the bottom of the second division and win the European Cup those are scenes that I, I don't think we'll, we'll we'll see again, and 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 although people can say that's a negative thing to say, I actually think it makes the story of the three kings and Brian Clough, as I'm sure we'll come on to later, even more yeah. romantic now. Yeah, it does because what I always what I always say to people is they always say, oh, you know, uh, you know, what, it's different now to then, and he got well, it wasn't. It was really really hard to win the European Cup then, because if it was so easy, 
why didn't more teams do it? If it was so easy, why didn't they? And they go, yeah, I never really thought of it like that. I says, when Celtic won the European Cup in 1967, they beat one of the great teams of that decade, the Inter Milan team, who were considered the masters of defence, you know, the way they played. And they went there and everybody said, oh, well, whatever happens, as long as they don't go 1-0 down early, you know, they'll have a chance. They went 1-0 down really early. <laughs> they won the game. And you just go, that happened. You know, they did it. And that's the same with Clough. You know, I always think there's a great line Brian Clough actually says. Where he says, well, you can talk and talk and talk about football as much as you want. You have to go up and do it. And these three men all did it. That's, that's the point of the film, you know. But Archie McPherson, the great Scottish commentator, gives me so many wonderful lines when I interviewed him. And he says, I've met so many brilliant talkers of football, people who can philosophise all night. But when they walk into a room, they can't make players stand up like Jock Steen was able to do when he walked into the dressing room, you know. And I just thought those bits, those nuggets of gold tell you so much about what these men must have been like in their story, you know. And I love that. That's what I went on a on a journey of, of discovery, really, doing this film, in being able to find out that information, because that makes it, that tells me stuff that I didn't know. And that that paints the picture for me that if Bill Shankly or Matt Buzzy walked in a room, players stood up. That's <laughs> just like, uh, that's the most extraordinary thing, you know. And that all comes from the respect they must have had for them as because they were players, they were from a tough part of the world, they'd come through, they'd been successful. You know, you don't get that overnight. You get that by being successful and getting results. And it's the same with Brian Clough. Martin O'Neill said to me a wonderful thing. He said when he walked in the dressing room in Nottingham Forest in 1975, he said he was, a, he was an A-list celebrity. He said he was on Parkinson every other week. He was on the news when there was only three channels. He was one of the most famous men in Britain. So when somebody like that walks in a room, you tend to sort of think, well, I'll give this guy a, a chance or a go. And I'm going to try and listen to what he says. And that is exactly what happened with all three men, I think, is that when, when they when they were managing in football. Steen's a good example. Steen goes to Dunfermline, wins the Scottish Cup. He takes them into Europe. They beat Everton. They beat Valencia. Uh, then he goes to Hibernian and he wins the Summer Cup. And he's only there six months because he's already turned them around. And Celtic think, well, we've got to get him in. So if you're a player, you're already getting a manager in who's literally gone to Dunfermline and turned it around and he's gone home. So you're going to be thinking, well, this guy is going to, going to be decent. And I think that's what they all had. They all had that thing where they could say to somebody, a player or anybody, well, I've been there. I've done that. I've done it as a player. I've done it as a manager. You know, I, I came through the hardest profession of all, mining, the most dangerous of all. So, you know, you're going to have respect for somebody like that. So they were the classic leaders in, uh, to use the, the famous term about the army, the great, the great officers are the ones that you believe would do that themselves and have done it themselves. And you, you have all the respect in the world for them then. Absolutely. And another thing that, that really for me just showcases their incredible talent and, and more than just football management is, you know yourself, Johnny, these days people will say, if you're the manager of the modern day Manchester United or Celtic or Liverpool, there's too many facets to the club for one man to control yeah. them all and have a big say. But you could argue that was the exact same when these guys were managing and they did control every every facet of the club and they were able to do that, produce the success on the park, but also build a solid foundation behind the scenes that lasted for generations. Because when you think of Liverpool, Manchester United, Celtic, in terms of the, the three kings in the film, those are clubs that, that have, have been strong since the days of those three kings. So you can say... Yes, they achieved great success on the park, but they built far more off the park as well. Yeah, I mean, you got, I, 
I couldn't go into this kind of detail in the film because I had a certain amount of time, but you're absolutely right. So for argument's sake, I could just talk about the scouting system of all three clubs. So if you think of it, uh, everybody knows the famous story about Steen where he said, you know, there's, there's a great Catholic kid playing and, and, and a Protestant kid at the same time. And he goes to see, he sends the scout to see the Protestant kid. Why? Well, I know Rangers want to try and sign the Catholic kid so we can go back and watch him later, you know. So he was, he was across stuff like that, you know what I mean? You know, clever. Um, you know, and then he, he was very happy to sign Douglas. He was a Protestant himself. He didn't care about things like that. He just wanted the best players and the best people for Celtic. Fantastic. And then you got Liverpool, who had uh, Jeff Twentyman, the really famous scout. You know, you had Ruben Bennett there. You know, and they were going to places like Scunthorpe and picking up Ray Clements, who was one of the great goalkeepers of his generation. And they found Keegan over in Doncaster Way. You know, and Man United, probably most famously of all, of the best scouting system in Britain, picking up people like Duncan Edwards in Wolverhampton, you know, down in South Wales, picking up players like Mark Jones. So you just go, the men were, in the modern sense, um, all over it. You know, and like all great managers, you know, they would send people out because they couldn't watch every game, but they would send trusted lieutenants out to watch matches. And again, the great management is in picking the right people to be your trusted lieutenants. If you think of the three assistants, I was really, really close to, to, to doing a five minute section of the film with this, but I thought to myself, well, no, actually, it's about the three men, so I can't really go there because the biggest problem I had was going, how long do I, do I spend on Johnston or Best or Keegan? But I was thinking, well, actually, it's about the managers, this film. So I've got to do what the managers mention about them. Otherwise, you can get you can fall down the rabbit hole with Best and do 20 minutes on Best and how important he was to, to British popular culture. I thought, I've got to stay with this. I've got to stay with the three men. But if I could just talk about the assistants, Matt Busby's assistant was Jimmy Murphy. He was the man who took Wales the 1958 quarterfinal of, uh, of the World Cup. He was the man that took over after the, the Munich air disaster and did a wonderful job, you know, uh, a man that's had documentaries and books written about him, Sean Fallon at, uh, at Celtic Park, you know, uh, uh, such an important right-hand man that Steen had right the way through him. And then, of course, Bob Paisley at Bill Shankly. So, you know, again, the great management was them picking the right people to be their right-hand man. That's a skill in itself, you know. So that's why in the film, I wanted just to concentrate on the three men. The three ultimately, you know, that's why I call it the king, you know, the crown is heavy. All the decisions in the football club ended up with them. And what was really interesting was, especially in Steen's case, I mean, Shankly, I used to have to go and see the board all the time and, and kind of like would, would would fall out with them quite a lot over, over um, transfers and things. Busby kind of ran Man United <laughs> in a way. Busby was, was absolutely an iron hand in a velvet glove, Busby was. He was a really clever bloke. Um, but Steen really, really had to go and report to, to the board almost weekly and explain himself, which is a most unbelievable thing in the modern context of the game. I actually think managers have probably got more power now than ever, even though they've got like a system of, you know, directors of football and all that. Steam was having to answer to the foot. And in the film, Johnny Giles gives a wonderful uh, line to me where he says, football is a unique business in that you can be successful for nine years, but you're under more pressure in the 10th year if you've been successful for nine years than in your first year because you're expected to repeat it. And that was a really interesting part of the film was that Steen, the first season that Steen didn't win the title, he was immediately under pressure. When Busby came back from Munich and it took him two years really to get himself physically up and running, he was under pressure at Old Trafford. He was under a bit of pressure. The only one that kind of wasn't really was Shankly. That's because I think Shankly was, was almost had a, a messiah sort of, uh, he was the messiah for Liverpool. He was so popular with the Liverpool public because of how he was and how he spoke, that he was kind of bomb-proof, Bill, in that sense. And that's why it was such a shock when he walked out. And Liverpool were always 
first or second in the league or get into cup semis and finals. They were always knocking on the door, Liverpool. Um, so it is really interesting that, you know, the managers, people always say to me, would they manage in the modern, modern era? Absolutely. They'd have been fine. I agree with that. And I think you, you think of the, the three in the film, you think of Brian Clough and, and I believe in miracles as well. Um, I have to ask you about Brian Clough because he's, he's yeah. someone who fascinates so many people, even in my generation. I just, I just think he's, he's an incredible character. When, when you consider the three kings and you consider Brian Clough, um, what was it like directing I Believe in Miracles compared to the three kings? Well, I Believe in Miracles was a great film to do because I just concentrated on those five years between 1975 and 1980. I was a bit like, I was really influenced by When We Were Kings, which because Muhammad Ali was such um, a huge character really in history, in social history in America, that I think it's only right that you can concentrate on certain moments of his career because otherwise you need a 10 part Netflix series. And I think Clough is probably the closest to that we've got in the UK in that he was a great player and a tragic injury. Then he goes to Hartlepool's and he goes to Derby and that's an amazing story. That's a film, damned United. Then he goes to Forest and that's an amazing story, my bit. Then there's the later Forest where he nearly wins the FA Cup and then bless him, alcoholism gets him. And So there's so many facets to something like Brian Clough's life, you know, that he's, he's, he's almost like a Shakespearean play, really, in five parts. Um, so that's why I wanted to just concentrate on those five years, really. And the trajectory of the film is very different to, say, I, um, The Three Kings. And The Three Kings has got, obviously, their life story, so it does that. And there's the amazing mid-60s period where the three of them are literally ruling the world of football. And then there's the gentle decline because they, 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 they're getting older and they're not men of their time. And then there's a tragedy of what happened to Jock, uh, but he still gets Scotland, uh, Scotland qualified, which is amazing. And obviously the tragedy of, of Bill, who retires too early, and then Matt is the only one that you'd probably say dies kind of like at old age, a good 15, 20 years after he's finished. But the thing with the, the, the I Believe Miracles film was, it's just that. You're just going, because it's, 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 a, it's a rocket ride with Clough for those five years. He literally goes into a mid-table second division club, and within five years, when takes them up, wins the title, wins two League Cups, wins two European Cups, and a Super Cup. It's just, it's just preposterous what he did, really, in that five years. Um, but I think what happened was with Nottingham Forest, they got a man at that age, 44, I think he was, early 40s, who was at his prime. They got Brian Clough, perfect Brian Clough. They got him at the time when he was going to be the best in the game, a bit like the mid-60s. So basically, you could probably argue, argue Bus Busby was at his best in the mid-50s with the Babes, but, he, you know, he brought up, you know, there's a good argument to say the mid-60s team was as good, Charlton, Lauren Best team. Same with Shankly. Shankly by the mid-70s, I mean, that Liverpool team was phenomenal. The one that won the FA Cup in probably the greatest FA Cup final performance in history, the 74, where they dominated Newcastle. And then 1967 Celtic is probably the only team, I would say, that tops them all, in that I think what Celtic did in 1967 is the greatest feat in the history of football, any team, simply because they won every single cup available to win. And even the most difficult cup in the world to win, which is still the European Cup Champions League now, and they won them all. So I mean, these these are I've been really lucky. I'm like I've cherry picked the greatest stories in football, um, but that's why they're the greatest stories, and that's why I'm so interested in them. I'm I'm interested in what these men achieved because you know, just like I said earlier, taking a step back, you, you still can't help but going. It's incredible. It's a, I mean, even if you just go. Busby won the European Cup 10 years after the Munich Air disaster. I mean, he literally seen a whole team that he developed killed, and he still won it 10 years later. It's still the most 
one of the most remarkable things when you when you think about it you know what 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 he must have been like to to have achieved that you know and these are the days where you could spend a lot of money and, and all that kind of stuff so i just i just think the cliff coming back to i believe in miracles it's no it's no accident the cliff was a great friend of um, of all three men you know he, he knew them all they were all good friends they'd all speak regularly because he was very much of that ilk really he was very much in their um, in their bracket as a great manager you know they were all them three were incredible managers but Clef is right there up there with them I think I agree I think his his personality his character and his achievements definitely would put him up there with all three and and to go down a different path with you Johnny um, very passionate Welshman <laughs> don't take me home I mean just talk me talk me through what it was like being involved in that incredible run that Wales were on, because as a Scotsman and as Scots, Scots, Scots people listen to this, I'm sure we can all really resonate with that, how much it meant to the country to get there. Obviously, you have some tragedy in the previous qualification campaign with the late Gary Speed, bless him. You get Chris yeah. Coleman, you've got Gareth Bale, you've got big characters coming through. And what I really loved about that Wales team is the fact that, yes, you had Gareth Bale, who was a superstar of the game, a modern-day king on the on the pitch as a player, but yet he could play alongside your Hal Robson, Canu, and, and others who were playing maybe in the Championship in England, and there was no divide, there was no ego, there was just a, a team spirit and a unity, a passion that, that, that got Wales to, to, within a whisker, really, when you think on it, of achieving something which which would have been one of the greatest football achievements ever. I mean, getting to the semi-finals for me, for a, for a nation like Wales, the same way it'd be for Scotland, is absolutely remarkable. Yeah, I mean, it was it was absolutely brilliant. And like I said, now I know I mentioned it earlier, I'm so pleased Scotland qualified because I know how massive it'll be. You know, it's been 20 years since you've been there and major tournaments are even bigger now than ever. So it was great to get there. And what happened with Wales as well was, you know, that this thing, this thing with the draw where a lot of big teams went out, you know, like your Germanys and Italy's. Um, but the the and they're always worried with sponsors, especially for big tournaments like that, which you know relies on sponsors and and figures from across the world. I always remember coming back after it and somebody saying that the figures for Wales games went up across the world, and I was a bit like, I'm so pleased about it because everybody loves an underdog, and you can forget that sometimes in sport, you know. And talking about underdogs, it's it's sometimes an advantage for us countries like Wales and Scotland, smaller countries, A, because there's not so much pressure on us now. I mean, you're there now, so just enjoy it. Just enjoy it. That's all, that's all our attitude was. You've done brilliant getting there. You're a nation of five million people, still a small nation in European terms, and you've got there. Fantastic. Pat me back. Let's just see what happens now. And that's how I felt with Wales. And having this team of players that are made up of different sort of, uh, so often different players from different leagues, you know, in, in, in England, players from the Championship, sometimes League One, can be an advantage and I know that's going to sound really strange but in England for argument's sake they had a massive problem with the Gerard Lampard scores thing you know one position sometimes for three players and it caused real problems because they didn't quite know what to do whereas if you know your right backs the best right back is Chris Gunter who plays for Reading Chris Gunter plays he knows he plays and you just get on with it and Chris Gunter gives you 110% every time he plays so in some ways you can use that to an advantage and you know Players will go in there, and even the Welsh players, they would often say to me, you know, I'm with Gareth Bale, and, and, ba and Bale, they call him in Wales, and Bale's brilliant. You know, so you're sitting opposite the most expensive player in the world, as he was then, one of the most famous players on the planet still, and he's talking to you, and, you know, saying to you, off, oh, you're tucking behind me, and, well, that's going to have an effect on players. And I think, 
you know, Scotland, I think like, like Andy Robertson, for argument's sake, I think he's been really important to Scotland because he plays in one of the best teams, if not the best team in Europe at the moment. And that's massive because other players go, well, you know what, I'm in the same team as him. And that gives you a lift, you know. And I think what can happen is for, for Wales and for Scotland is position to play at the player position to position. They always should beat us, the big countries. But if I can talk about the quarterfinal against Belgium, for argument's sake, Belgium were the tournaments to win that, favourites to win that tournament from that moment on. And when I now look back at that team, the Belgian team, it's ridiculous. Lukaku, <laughs> Hazard, uh, De Bruyne, uh, Fellaini was in there then, uh, the goalkeeper was the best in the world. I mean, how, you know, we had Hal Robson-Carno up front. <laughs> it was like, we shouldn't have been, I mean, somebody even said to me, we might lose this four or five nil, but we've done great again at the quarterfinals. And we beat them 3-1, you know. So you can do it. You know, I think what Wales proved was sometimes teamwork, you know, fat players getting on brilliantly, having one or two players who are world-class, you know, which Scotland have got now. Andy Robertson is a world-class player. That can, that can be enough. That can be enough to get you through, get you into different rounds. And you've just got to believe. You just have to believe. And I think, you know, I know you lost the other night, but Scotland had lost for about seven, eight games. You know, they've done really well in the League of Nations football. You know, I was I was the one saying to my Scottish mates, I think you've got a really good chance this is before the Israel game. And they're going, nah, 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 you don't understand, you know, what we've been through. And I was a bit like, no, we've been through that. But I think you've got a chance with these boys and the manager. He's a good international manager, you know. In international football, first thing you're not going to do is concede lots of goals. First thing you've got to do, you've got to be tight to the back. Wales, I don't think, have conceded for five games. I said, you've got to be tight at the back, and Steve Clark will do that for you. And he did it. He made you hard to beat. He made you tight. He made you compact, fit, organised. Straight away, you go, well, England won't have it all their way, own way with a team like that. You can't. And then add on top of that the history of England Scotland, suddenly it's a whole new game. So, you know, for me, Wales getting there was huge in 2016. It changed Welsh football. Financially, it was massive for us. So you, you had lots of money being invested in the infrastructure to kids. All that's coming Scotland's way now. All that's coming Scotland's way. And it's massive for us because I think if you've got a nation of only 5 million people, um, then you've got to be, you know, the best you could possibly possibly be behind the scenes. Uh, and I know the Welsh FA, because I know them personally, have been really, really, really dynamic and forward thinking the last few years. And I know the SFA have improved massively recently. A lot of people are much happier with the way things are there and the way the national team is done. And that only bodes well for the future. So I think uh, the future is very bright for Scotland. And in terms of that, that, that situation with Wales, what was it like for you, considering that it was a story in the moment, for, for, for want of a better phrase? I mean, we think of the Three Kings, we think of I Believe in Miracles, and they are absolutely incredible stories and some of the, the best um, sporting films I've watched. Don't Take Me Home is, is the exact same for me, but it has the unique factor as of it's in the moment and you can feel and see that emotion. Basically, it feels as if it's live in many cases. Yeah, and that's exactly right. That's exactly what I'm trying to do. I, I describe it, it was almost like, I'm going to sound older, but like a Polaroid of the moment of when we got back. That's, that's five or six months. Um, and it had to be that. You know, I had to do the, I had to get the, uh, excuse me, let me get back up. There you go. I've just gone low power. Let me plug myself in. Yeah, yeah, I had to, I had to um, I had to sort of do it so that it was live as live, really, uh, to use an expression. Because the thing was, I when I went out to do the to do to put out to the tournament, I didn't know I didn't know that I was going to do the film. It was when I got back, 
the Welsh FA um, BT Sport, a guy called Grant Best, who was a who was a producer, was a lovely guy. They got in touch with me and said, "Do you fancy doing the Wales film about the Euros?" And I was in Tenerife, and I was a bit like, "I'll swim back to do that film." Do you know what I mean? I'll leave now. I'll dive into the sea and, and head home now. You know, I was I was snap your hand off for it. So they were like brilliant. So they said, "Well, listen, when you come home." Get down to Cardiff and let's have a meeting about it. Fantastic. So I drive down to Cardiff the next day after landing back in, in Nottingham. And they say to me, look, we've got loads of footage from behind the scenes. Uh, there's a company called Tiny Media who were attached to the Welsh FA who do lots of behind the scenes footage. And it was brilliant. So I was like, well, I've got loads here. So they said, well, you can interview all the players and the manager uh, and you can, we'll get you the footage of the qualifying games and the footage of the games. And do you think you can do something with it? And I was like, I can and I said to them, my, my initial thoughts was, I had a bit of time when I was on holidays to think, what about including some fan footage, stuff from, literally from mobile phones from fans? And I said, I know a lot of boys who watch Wales. I'll just stick it out on a, few, on a few sites and we'll see what we get. And they were like, that's a great idea. So that's why in the film, there's all the, the usual thing you'd see, but there's a quite a lot of stuff you see when I cut to which fans give me, which was great. And I think that gave it a certain sort of a fan's eye view of it, a, a dynamism, which, which I really wanted. And it worked really well. And the thing is, what was what was funny was I got back and we had a little bit of stick when it came out from the English media going, why would you make a film about, you know, just getting the semi-final? And I was able to say in one of the first interviews, well, you did. You made a film called One Night in Two Rin. And of course they went, oh, yeah. Because I think the thing with, with, with the English media is they sometimes think they won Italian 90. They didn't. They went out in the semi-final, the same as Wales. And they were like, oh, yeah, we forgot about that. And that totally put that to bed then. They never asked me that again. So it was really interesting that, you know, Wales were the, are the smallest country to ever get to a, a major tournament semi-finals in football history. So that was enough of a story in itself. But I always felt the story really was about Wales after Gary Speed, because when Gary Speed came in, he started so well. And obviously the tragedy of him, you know, passing away, taking his own life was awful. And for the rest of that qualifying tournament, we were hammered in lots of games. And it's really interesting to talk about the players who played in those games. And they ended up playing in the Euros, saying that we, it took us much longer to get over that than we realised. And that was a big part of the film. And I think Wales felt like that as well. The country, it took us a good year, really, 18 months to kind of absorb what had happened and then come back again. And that's where you've got to give a lot of credit to someone like Chris Coleman. He did a magnificent job, really, in saying, right, well, OK, I need to embrace this because you have to forgive him Gary Speed's best friends. It's, it's, a, it's an incredible story. And then he, what he did was he would have Gary's sons and father in the dressing room and talk about Gary. And, and so they kind of, they took that story and that, um, they took Gary with them, to use an expression. They, they made it become part of what they were trying to do. And I thought that was a really brave decision and a big part of why Wales became successful in the run to that Euros and then had a great Euros because Oshian Roberts, the, um, the, the William, sorry, the, the assistant coach said to me, when times were, were bad during the tournament or, you know, if, when they lost to England for argument's sake in the in injury time, he said, it was nothing compared to what we'd been through with what had happened with Gary. It was a great way to put everything, great way to put everything into context, which I thought was a fantastic way of looking at it. It was like, we'd been through much worse. So there was nothing really that could affect us that badly. Um, and I just thought that was a terrific way of summing up the way Wales were that tournament. And and hopefully next year will be will be the same for for Wales and Scotland, Johnny. I'm yes, sure. I'm sure we both hope. Can we play each other? I don't, I don't, can we? Uh, can we meet? I don't know if we can. Can we yet? 
Maybe in the final. In well, the final. in the final, absolutely. I think I'd snap your hand off for that now. Um, but before I let you go, Johnny, you've been so generous with your time. Um, Not a problem. You're also involved um, currently at Nottingham Forest as well. How much does that mean to you, having produced I Believe in Miracles, to now be involved with the club directly as well? Oh, it's been great. I tell you what, we're putting light on. It's getting dark, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Not as dark as I imagine it is in, in, uh, in Scotland. There you go. Ah, you can see me now. So, yeah, I, um, I was, I've been very lucky. I, um, I made the film, I Believe in Miracles, and what happened was the, the new owners of Forest had seen the film and loved it and asked to meet me and I met them um, and they were just after a conversation of a, you know like this a few hours we were just chatting away and, and um, he said well, look would you be interested in coming and doing some stuff with us and I was a bit like well you know depending on what it is I, I'd certainly be interested in that great football club great football club huge fan base you know and uh, they're desperate to get back in the Premier League um, and I want to be part of that, of trying to get them back in the Premier League because I live in Nottingham now and it's a fantastic city. They've been wonderful to, to me, the people, and my missus is obviously a Nottingham girl. Um, but it's really hard to get out of the championship, as, as Leeds will tell you, and so many other clubs. But I think, you know, ultimately, with Nottingham Forest, you just feel that it's a Premier League club. You know, they always get nearly 30,000 home games this is in the championship. You know, they've got terrific away support, an amazing history. Um, and sometimes you just need a calm head to sort of maybe make that happen. And, you know, Chris Hooten is a great manager with great experience and he's a very calm, rational man. He's done it with clubs. He's done it with Brighton. He's done it with Newcastle. So maybe they've got the right guy in place, you know, because it isn't through want of trying from the owners, you know, the money they've spent on players and trying to get players in and the fans who are absolutely terrific in their support. I mean, I think they sell. It's like 20,000 season tickets, you know, in the championship. It's, it's remarkable. So it's not through one to try. And I love going in there. And um, nothing would make me happier than if Nottingham Forest got back in the Premier League. Absolutely. That's something that I think many listeners to this will agree with. It's clubs like Leeds and Forest are traditional powerhouses. And it, it's, it's, they're the clubs that, that you want to see in the top flight taking on the Liverpools, the Manchester Uniteds and the others as well. Just yeah. before you go, Johnny... The three yeah. things, it's, it's available now. Uh, people can buy it. And I'd really recommend that you do, especially in the run-up to Christmas. What would you like to say to the listeners just before you go? Oh, well, listen, you know, thanks very much for listening to the show, if you stayed with me. <laughs> um, I really appreciate it. Uh, the support from uh, Scotland in particular has been sensational. I mean, like I said, I've made sports films in the past and got into the, the top five of the sports charts, but this is a different gravy, really. <laughs> We're topping, like, sort of, and getting to the top of the actual charts and documentary charts and it's just brilliant you know and I'm really pleased that uh, the people of Scotland you know can see a film like this and what I've been absolutely bowled over by is fans of all clubs saying how proud they are the three men because like I said you don't have to be a fan of Celtic, Liverpool or Manchester United to understand and realise how important these Scotsmen were to the to the game you know to the game on a world level and how much esteem they held in right across the planet and I'm really glad that people are you know, sort of hopefully for the film, they're already legendary in my eyes and well known. But if a new generation can see what they did and how important they were, then then I'm a happy man. Absolutely. And as I say, I recommend everyone listening definitely watches the film. It's absolutely fantastic. Johnny, thank you for joining me. And hopefully when you have another project in the future, we can have you back again. Well, I'm hoping once, once, once hopefully we're all out of the, the lockdown next year and the vaccine, I'll be up and I'll have a pint, definitely. Okay. We go to see Queen's Park together. Okay. Brilliant. Top man. <laughs> so we'll dive down to the ocean 
I'm a maker home in a deep sea cave And her shells will all be open They'll be filled with song, they'll be filled with song We'll dive down to the ocean I'm a 